Last week we focused on the Bible as God's inspired word, recognizing that all Scripture is God-breathed. In other words, God is the source. God is the supreme author of Scripture. It all comes from Him. We remembered that men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word that is used here is also used for sailing ships as the wind would catch the sails and move them along in that direction. And, and what, we, what we came to understand was that God's Spirit led these men to write down over centuries precisely what He wanted. And even so, we capture the uniqueness and the personalities and the style of each author. It is a wonderful blend of what is true and holy from God, but written down by the hands of men. And through the centuries, God superintended His message. He cared for His message. And what we have today has been preserved for us. God's truth for us through the centuries as is evidenced by so much textual evidence. And we looked at some of that last week. All this is to say, the Bible that you hold in your hands today is God's Word. And it is precisely because it is God's Word that it has the authority to speak to our lives. Not only is it inspired, God breathed, but it is also authoritative for our lives. When we ignore it, we do so to our own peril. When we refuse to adjust our lives to God's revealed will, we rob ourselves of peace and we rob God of glory. It has authority to speak to our lives. But does it really matter which holy book you follow? I mean, come on. We call the Bible a holy book, but there's certainly other faiths who have other holy books. Does it really matter whether you follow the, the Bible or, or whether you follow the, uh, the Book of Mormon or the Koran or, or, as the Hindus, the Bhagavad Gita? Yes, it, it does matter which holy book you follow. And without going into a ton of specifics this morning, I want to say that nearly every holy book contains some truth. But some truth is not what we need to build our lives on. The truth is what we need to build our lives on. You see, all holy books don't teach the same thing. And in fact, in many ways, they're contradictory to Scripture. So to hold to all of them would be sheer foolishness. Let me just give you one example this morning. Consider the issue of salvation. Obviously, the Bible talks a lot about being saved. As we think about this, how does what the Bible has to say about salvation compare to what some of the other holy books have to say about salvation? Salvation being defined as coming into, entering into a right relationship with God, not just going to heaven, but being in right relationship with God, which ultimately will lead us to live with Him forever. The Bible very clearly teaches that we are saved by God's grace, that is His gift. It's not by our works, our efforts, and that this salvation was secured for us by God's Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only means of salvation. There's no other way that we can be saved. That is what Scripture teaches about salvation, about as, as clearly and succinctly as, as I can put it. That is the teaching of Scripture. Let me give you a couple of examples from Scripture. 
just to to nail this down. Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace that you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Pretty well nails it down that salvation is by grace through faith. Let's look at what Jesus had to say himself. In John chapter 14, it's recorded, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. These are the clear scriptural teachings about salvation. It is by grace through faith in Jesus alone. Now, let's take a look at what some of the holy books say about salvation through Jesus. Quite frankly, most don't mention Jesus at all. There are some that do, but most don't at all. For instance, the Bhagavad Gita, that is a Hindu holy book, says that we become united with God, in other words, saved. We become united with God through action, devotion, and knowledge. That is the way in which we are saved, through action, devotion, and knowledge. If we look at, for instance, the Koran. In the Koran, Jesus is mentioned in the Koran. He's called Issa. But He's not mentioned as Savior. He's mentioned as a prophet. And this is significant because he's not even the preeminent prophet. Muhammad is the preeminent prophet. And so neither the Bhagavad Gita nor the Koran would be able to agree with us on Jesus as the sole means of salvation, the Jesus who's revealed in Scripture as the sole means of salvation. What about the Book of Mormon, for instance? It does consider Jesus to be Savior, calls Him Savior, but it denies that He is the one and only Son of God. In fact, what it says is that Jesus was a pre-existent spirit with God, just like all of us were pre-existent with God, according to their theology, and that what sets Him apart, what makes Him distinct, is that He was the firstborn of God's spirit children. In other words, it's not what we find about Him in the pages of Scripture. We could spend really all day, all week, all month comparing religions, comparing faiths, comparing holy books. But what I want to, the point I want to make here this morning is that it, it does matter. It does matter which book of truth we accept. If they contradict one another, they can't all be true. I mean, this is, this is just simple logic. If they're contradictory... They can't all be true. And we can sit back and we can fold our arms and, and, and take an attitude that all religions are basically the same, all holy books teach basically the same thing, all paths ultimately lead to the same God. But if we do that, if we do that, it is nothing less than intellectual dishonesty and, quite frankly, intellectual laziness. Not willing to do the due diligence to discover what the truth truly is. If, however, we become convinced that the Bible is is the God-breathed, inspired truth, then we have to come to the point of accepting it has authority in our lives. In other words, if this is what God is saying, then it has some bearing on my life. And if it has a bearing on my life, what does that look like? And that's what we want to investigate this morning by looking exactly where we looked last week in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. Paul writes to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, 
and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Heavenly Father, open our hearts and minds to understand and receive what you have to say to us today and to adjust our lives to your revealed will. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I'd like us to consider the value of the Scriptures. What power, what, what significance does it have for our lives? Let's look at the value of Scriptures for us and what the Bible has to say about it. First of all, we want to note that the Scriptures, it tells us, will make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Will make us wise for salvation. Now, you and I can learn a lot about God by just walking outside and looking at nature, can't we? We can go outside and we can see the power of God. We can see the majesty of God as we just look at what God has created out in this world. It's amazing what we can learn from God simply by what's out there. As a matter of fact, the book of Romans says that, you know, no one can deny God. Just, just look at this. Look at creation and see what God has done. When we do that, we come to a conviction that if this is created, then there, there's a creator. And in fact, that I'm part of God's creation. I am one of his creatures. And if that's true then perhaps this creator has some claim on my life. We can, get to, we can come to that point without ever picking up the Bible, without ever hearing about Jesus. We can come to the conclusion that there's a creator, and because there's a creator, I have some obligation to him as his creation. Were you and I alive in the time of Jesus, we could have learned a lot. We could have seen what he did. We could have heard what he spoke. We could have seen his power and his glory, and we could have recognized him as Son of God and placed our faith in him. But you and I are kind of in the same boat that Timothy was in. That is, we could look out in creation and see all of this and recognize that there is a creator and I have some obligation to him, but never had direct one-on-one contact with Jesus. We had to come to learn from him from what we were taught, what we read, what we came to understand. That's where you and I are right now. We did not physically see Jesus heal anyone. We did not physically hear Jesus uh, speak the Sermon on the Mount or any, anything else. We need Scripture. Again, we go back to last week. What we said last week is this is true. It is something upon which you can build your life. But what we're learning today is because God has given us this truth, we can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The Scriptures can make us wise for salvation. And the Scriptures point us to Jesus. If we go back to the Old Testament, we read the stories of of creation and the fall, and we read how God interacted with the people. But we also see His promise of a Messiah, His promise of a Savior who was to come. When we fast forward to the Gospels, we get to see Jesus' virgin birth, His sinless life, His perfect teachings, His miraculous acts, His cruel death, His victorious resurrection, and His heavenly ascension. Then we move a little further into the book of Acts and into the the epistles, that that, uh, all those letters that were written after that. 
And what we see there are the continuing works of Jesus through the life of his church. And then ultimately, in the book of Revelation, we, we read of his, his ultimate final victory and his completely revealed glory. When we open the pages of Scripture, we begin to read about the one named Jesus, God's Son, Messiah, and Savior. The Bible tells us this so that we might believe in Jesus and receive Him as Savior and Lord of our lives. Quite frankly, apart from a miraculous vision, which, by the way, God is giving in Muslim countries in huge numbers. Jesus is appearing to Muslim imams in their dreams because they don't have this. So God's finding another way. But guess what? You have this. And apart from some kind of miraculous vision, without God's revelation preserved for us in the pages of the Bible, we could never truly come to know Jesus and to believe in Him. It's important. This book is important. It is not something that needs to sit on your shelf gathering dust. It is not something that you just put out on a coffee table so people know that you have it in your homes. It is not something that you just want to open up on Sunday mornings. This book makes you wise for salvation. When anyone comes to me and sits down and and is ready, God's been working on them to receive this free gift of salvation. Do you know what I do? I go to the Scriptures. Why? Because I don't create this way to be saved. God's already given it to us, and it's through Jesus Christ. And so I want to point them to verses like John 3.16, which tell us that God loved the world and loved each of us so much that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I want to communicate that truth, not something I created, but something that God gave to us to make us wise for salvation. Well, that's the first thing that 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that the Scriptures are good for, to make us wise for salvation. The second thing we note here is that the Bible is useful for teaching. That is, in telling us what is right. You can find a lot of people who will be happy to tell you what is right, what is good, what is true. But I want to tell you, the best place to go to find out what is right, good, and true is to the Word of God. And truth is important. Truth really needs to be the building block, one of the huge building blocks for our lives. Anything else that we build our lives on is going to let us down, either here on earth or in eternity or both. As we open the pages of Scripture, what we find is God's truth. And at that point, we have a choice. We can either devote ourselves to knowing the truth or we can ignore it. Think about this. When confronted with God's truth, we have a choice. We can devote ourselves to knowing it and bending our lives to fit God's truth, or we can simply ignore it. Pretend that we didn't read it. Mentally take an exacto knife and cut it out because it's too hard or too difficult or too challenging for us to receive. But it is the truth upon which we need to build our lives Listen to what Jesus said. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And when the rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. 
But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, who reads them and ignores them, is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. When the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, it fell with a great crash. Upon what are we going to build our lives? I want to encourage you to build your truth on the rock, on what is firm, on what is sure, upon what is true. So the Bible is useful to make us wise for salvation, for teaching us what is true. Third, the Bible is useful for rebuking. That is, showing us what is wrong. It'll show us what's true, but it'll also show us what is wrong. As we begin to open the pages of Scripture, it can be like a giant spotlight that just turns on and penetrates the fog and the darkness of our lives. What we see there is not always pleasant. What we see there is not always consistent with God's revealed will. The Bible points out where our lifestyles are inconsistent with God's revealed will for our lives. It shines that spotlight. And when it does, we come to a point of decision. When we see the truth, we come to a point of decision. When we see what we've done wrong, what, what, how our lives are inconsistent, we also come to a point of decision. We can continue to live the way that we are living, or we can adjust ourselves to fit the will of God. Now, the Bible can rebuke us. As we open the pages of Scripture, we can be rebuked. But, but i got to tell you, sometimes our brothers and sisters in Christ can rebuke us. And we want to listen to what they say. The Bible says that iron, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the other. But you know what happens when iron sharpens iron? Sparks fly. That can happen as, as we lovingly speak the truth in love into someone's life to say, hey, I just I love you enough that I don't want you to continue down this path. I want you to understand that God has something to say about what it is that you are doing in your life, how it is that you are living right now. So rebuking sounds like something harsh and cruel, but when it is done in the right spirit, it truly is an act of love. And when we're rebuked by a godly person, they're simply pointing out the error, not to say, hey, look, I'm better than you, but because they're trying to basically shine that light to help you see so that you can make the change that you need to make in your life. It can be intimidating, that's for sure, but God's Word says better is open rebuke than hidden love. What's that saying? When we rebuke someone with the right motivation, we are loving them. If you see someone merrily skipping down a pathway that you, need, that you know leads to quicksand, how foolish would it be for you to let them go their way without saying a word? God's truth and rebukes from godly people can both show us where we fall short. Fourth, the Bible is useful for correcting. That is, how do we get right? How do we get from where we are to where God wants us to be? The Bible teaches us that it's God's truth. It teaches us where our lives fall short. But fortunately, it doesn't leave us flailing around on a dock like a fish that's just been caught. God's Word is there to move us toward godliness, to help us get from where we are to where He wants us to be. One of the reasons that the Bible is given to us is to redirect our lives. We're heading this way. We encounter God's truth. We, our lives are redirected and moved into a way that's consistent with God's will. It's like a road map. You unfold your road map and you see where you are 
and you see where you want to go. But you know what? That's not often a lot of help. What I need is, how do I get from point A to point B? And Scripture is there to help you find out how to get from point A to point B. What you need is God's Word as as a guide. And it will be. In fact, in Psalm 119, verses 59 and 60, we read, I have considered my ways and have turned my steps to your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. In other words, God, I see where it is that you want me. I see how you want me to get there. I'm not going to delay in moving from where I am to where you need me to be. Now, closely tied to God's word correcting us is the next part, and that is the Bible is useful for training in righteousness. That is, how, to, how, how do I live right? How do I live in the right way? And this is interesting, and, and again, you're not going to be tested on this, so don't worry. The Greek word for training is, is a paideia. Paideia is a Greek form of learning. You know, we think about learning. We think of sitting in a classroom and maybe hearing a lecture or maybe getting some tests. We, we think about that. The, the learning in this instance is where you actually had an instructor who came alongside the student. And actually, they were there together uh, all day long. And it was a process of learning. It wasn't just learning facts and figures. That was part of it. But it was more about learning how to be the ideal man. In the Greek philosophy, there was this ideal man. And, and that's what it was learning. So I'm not only listening to what's being said, I'm looking at how the other person is living, and I'm practicing those things so that I then can become the ideal man. That was the Greek philosophical way to look at it. Now, when we come to this, the Scripture becomes our pedia, becomes our instructor, and we are connected with what God has to say as we walk through life, but not that we're trying to become the ideal man. When it comes to the Christian life, God's desire is that we become more like Jesus, who is himself the ideal man. And so what we're trying to do, the scriptures are trying to lead us to, is a lifestyle that looks more like Jesus. The Bible is intended to train us for righteousness. It's not enough just to learn facts and figures, to know the 66 books of the Bible by name. It's not enough to know just how old Methuselah was when he died. It's not enough just to know whether Jesus, whether Jesus multiplied five loaves and two fish or two loaves and five fish. Those are good things to know. You want to know those things. It's, it's good knowledge to have. It's scriptural to have that. But the point of Scripture was not just to fill our heads with a bunch of facts and figures. The point of Scripture is to lead us to Jesus Christ And the knowledge that we need most of all is a personal knowledge of God through Jesus. And that leads us to a growing relationship with Him. The Greek goal was the ideal man. God's goal is for us to be more like Jesus. Our lifestyle and our choices are to be informed and guided by God's truth. Jesus said when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit brings us alive to God's Word, illuminating His truth in our hearts. God doesn't leave us on our own. I am so grateful. I am so grateful that I have a resource when I open the pages of this book other than just my mind. 
Because if I didn't, we'd all be in trouble. I have a spiritual resource. And the good news is you have that same spiritual resource. You can have every commentary in the world, every Bible dictionary in the world, but the greatest asset you have to opening this and reading this is the Holy Spirit in your hearts, for He will guide you into all truth. He will open up your heart, your mind, your eyes to understand it. Now, it's good to have all those other things. It's good to have godly teachers who can come alongside. But don't you think for one moment that you can't read and understand Scripture on your own. You can. There may be some parts that are harder than others. There may be some that give you more of a challenge than others. Believe me, there's some parts that really challenge me. But what I do know will change my life, and what you can know will change your life. You see, God not only saves us, He gives us what we need. He meets our needs through His Word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and through the encouragement and accountability that we find in the church family. God meets our needs. Consider what the Apostle Peter wrote to the believers. He said His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to your goodness knowledge and to your knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he's nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from past sins. Therefore, my brothers... Be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we believe the Bible to be inspired, to be God-breathed, if we truly believe that it is God's word to us, then we must agree that it has something to say to our lives, how we live, some claim on us. We cannot simply afford to ignore God or what He has to say. God's Word, you see, is reliable and true. It matters whether we accept it or not. It matters whether we accept it or not. It can either be a stepping stone of, in our walk of faith, or it can be a stone that will crush us as we run up against it. It's our choice. It has authority simply because it is God's Word, plain and simple. Our lives must be adjusted to God's truth or His will, and His will, or there will be consequences. George Barna is a Christian researcher who very often and uncomfortably rips the veil off the American church so that we can see what's on the inside. Some of his findings are quite disturbing and unsettling. For they show that professing Christians too often give lip service to their faith. Their lifestyles are truly not much different than people who aren't Christians at all. Their faith has no real impact on how they live day to day. 
I'd like you to listen as I read some of his conclusions from one survey on religious beliefs and practices. I want you to listen because he speaks with somewhat of a prophetic voice to the church today. He says the ultimate aim of belief in Jesus is not simply to possess divergent theological ideas, but to become a transformed person. These statistics, face effect on behavior, highlight the fact that millions of people who rely on Jesus Christ for their eternal destiny have problems translating their religious beliefs into action beyond Sunday mornings. He goes on to say, We have found that unless young children are taught how to tie their beliefs into their daily behavior, the chances of their faith ever influencing their lifestyle in significant ways is slim. Parents and religious teachers must both model such integration for young people while simultaneously working through such behavior and and choices with them. Faith perspectives that are not quickly translated into action become mantras that get lip service but have limited effect on lives. Theology without hands and feet. Our studies consistently show that the habits formed while we are young are the behaviors that define us when we are old. What is it that Barna is trying to say here? Two things. Number one, when we look at the lifestyle of American believers, those who call themselves Christian, call themselves born again, and attend church, that as we look at our lifestyles and we look at the lifestyle of those who are outside the church, who do not profess Jesus as Savior, who do not attend church, that sadly our lifestyles don't look very much different. That the same practices, the same habits, the same problems, we all have them. And so we have to wrestle with, if God has moved in, if the Holy Spirit indwells us, and if God and God's Word have the power to transform our lives, why do we still look so much like the world those who are not saved, those who are not believers. Why is our lifestyle not different? Now, this is not to say that we all need to pack our bags and head off to, to monasteries and convents where we get away from the world. No, God needs us in the world. We are an incarnate church. We're here in the world to impact the world. But we have to be awfully careful that it's not the world that impacts us, that we don't adopt their attitudes and their behaviors and their lifestyles, that our lives are to be different so that we can make a difference. The second thing that he said, and this is significant, parents, grandparents, those who are involved in our children's and student ministry, listen very carefully. Most of the behaviors that stick with a child through life are created early on in their lives. What we teach them and what we model before them is significant. We cannot simply live our lives giving lip service to Jesus Christ, but not have our lives conformed to the will of Jesus. Because if we do, our children are going to pick that attitude up and take it with them. That religion, that the Christian faith is simply something we do on Sunday mornings. The only difference between our lives and the lives of our neighbors is that our car is somewhere else on Sunday morning. We're at church, but it has no impact of how I act at the ball game. It has no impact how I act at work. It has no impact how I act at home. It has no impact on my life whatsoever except to next Sunday morning. That kind of faith will not 
transform our lives or transform our families or transform our community. It is only when we are willing to allow God to speak to our lives, adjust ourselves to Him, get on board with His plan, that we can see the transformation that is promised in Scripture. I want to close with just another portion of Scripture, this time from the book of James. And I want you to hear what James has to say because it speaks powerfully to what Barna has just observed. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, their lifestyle, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, will be blessed in what he does. You and I all want the blessings of God. We all want it. But God's blessings flow more freely when we put ourselves in his path, when we put ourselves in his will. God is able to more freely bless us when we're walking with him than when we're walking away. My call to you this morning is to come to know God personally through Jesus Christ. Open his word and discover his truths. Let God know that you're willing to bend your life to his will. Receive what he has to say. Don't just hear the word, but do what it says. And I promise you this. Your life will begin to change. Your family will begin to change. Your workplace will begin to change. Your community will begin to change. It will not all be easy. And sometimes you will be opposed. But there is no better place to be, no safer place to be, than in the center of the will of God.